This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to season two of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad, your host. As you might know from season one, What I Did Next revolves around people's personal and professional crossroads and looks at those trajectories from key pivot points. My guests are multilingual, multicultural with roots in the Middle East. They're engaged, curious and passionate about knowledge and strive to make a difference in the world. For season two, we'll be dropping episodes every Monday, so stay tuned. Today, I'm delighted to welcome two very talented sisters, Fatma Ghali and Amina Ghali. This duo are the driving force behind the luxury jewelry brand Azza Fahmi, started by their mother. The sisters have been instrumental in taking the firm from a local Egyptian niche company to a luxury international brand with 19 retail doors across the Middle East, as well as in London and Washington, D.C. Employing over 280 employees, the company has also built a strong online presence. Fatma and Amina share a natural and comfortable intimacy together and come across as passionate and dedicated leaders of a much-beloved brand. They each bring innovative techniques to their respective roles and provide a compelling narrative about what it means to be strong Egyptian women. We're kicking off the season with one of the show's staple questions. I asked each of them about their ideal dinner party guests, the people they'd like to sit across the table with, and I got some pretty great answers. We kick off the show with Amina's answers. I would love to invite Ummu Kansum. I think I just want to be in the presence of greatness, and just to see what it feels like. Um, second person would be Shams Tabrizi. Again, just to see the light and, and perhaps have a few very deep conversations. Um, He's kind of mysterious though, isn't he? Yes. We know him through Rumi, but we don't know him very much. And I read a few things for him. And uh, for sure, I was confused actually whether I would have Rumi or him. And then I decided that he would be much more mystical and mysterious to have a conversation with. Third person would actually be Miriam Haskell. She's one of my all-time favorite jewelry designers from the mid-50s. She's She was a a pioneer when it came to costume jewelry. Um, fourth person would actually be Indra Nui, who was the CEO of PepsiCo. I think it, I think she's one of the ladies that definitely had a very, or seemed to have a very nice work-life balance. And the fifth person <laughs> was Robin Williams. <laughs> Robin Williams, the actor, the comedian. Yeah, I think, uh, I thought the... Dinner would be very intense. <laughs> you need to lighten it up. <laughs> a bit of humor and just someone who's going to lighten up the whole dinner yeah. and make the conversation flow and some sort of any co- comic. But he had a very dark side too. For sure. But Sani, I'm, I, I want the light side that's just going to make everything flow and yeah. make everything seem like it's, um, it's simple. I loved him. He was wonderful. Yeah. So that is my uh, interesting dinner, dinner list. 
طب فاطمه would there be any overlap with uh, Amina's guests? Uh, definitely Um Kalsum is an overlap. Uh, my four other guests are very different. Really? Yeah. Who do you have? Uh, I have Machiavelli. Wow. He's someone I've, I've studied Renaissance art history and he's someone that's, um, I believe, is greatly misunderstood and, and a very interesting character. And I think very complex character mm-hmm. that I would like to, mm-hmm. to have a conversation with. From that same era, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. I'm fascinated with the concept of the Renaissance man that was not just one thing, but, you know, a sculptor, a poet, a scientist, an architect, and how do you do that? How do you have all these dimensions? Yeah, it's impressive. It's like living life to the fullest. And he appeals to scientists, engineers, art lovers. He appeals to a, a whole range of people. Everyone. Yeah. Uh, Hatshepsut. Mm-hmm. Just to see that woman who ruled for for over two decades back then, and what ca- what type of character that is like. No one living? No one you know? No one you currently know, huh? No. You, neither of you have... No, I, I have Indra Nui. Oh, yes, that's right. Like, it's such an opportunity when you're yeah. given the option to meet For people sure. that were not uh, that yeah. are not alive. Yeah. So I felt like... Because I thought about it. Like, there are people that are living or people that are... That I'd like to meet, but I was like, I prioritized. My others are footballers, so I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My fifth one, I didn't choose the footballer, but if I choose people but alive. Why didn't you? Because another person I'd really like to meet is Muhammad Ali. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, why? Because, again, a very complex character, someone that changed. A country completely, someone that's, that's a visionary, but also not so straightforward. He doesn't know how to read and write, Fayani. It's incredible. But yeah, I think he, eh? I don't, I don't really? think he knew how to read and write. Ah, he was a he was soldier. He was an Albanian soldier. soldier. Oh, sorry. Not, not, uh, not the boxer. Ah. Muhammad Ali of Egypt. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But for me, it was. Uh, but my other lists are footballers. So. <laughs> you, I think you need Robin Williams also. Yeah. I think you should merge your dinner parties. And I can bring my footballers in, <laughs> and, uh, and it becomes a lighter. Thinking Leonardo da Vinci, Machiavelli, Muhammad. Any. I feel like these guys are gonna. Any. <laughs> and this is why I actually. But I was like, I need someone to lighten all this conversation. But it's interesting. I like that. You, you, neither of you went for only artistic or only business related. It's a, it's a real mix. I wonder though if we do have a dinner like that, would be an interesting dinner. Or would, they just, <laughs> would they just be so? I can, I can so vision like Shams Tabrizi just saying, "What am I doing here?" And Umkasum like fidgeting. Absolutely. <laughs> what am I in? Uh, it's basically just you know the idea is that who are the people you want to meet. Regardless of whether they match each other or whether it's a dinner, it's just who is on your wish list, you know? That's the idea. Mine was very eclectic also, so it's an interesting one. And I think I got Robin Williams just to lighten up the Mm. dinner. (laughs) So, second question, I'll start with Fatma this time. If you could pick one book one uh, film our one piece and one piece of music that mattered to you that impacted you that reminds you of a period in your life um, what what would you choose um the hardest for me was the one piece of music because i couldn't pick one piece of music i'm very very um i don't want to say muzi but like i i you know there are different pieces for different times Definitely, some of Um Kalsum's songs are top of the list for me, uh, but also Dire Straits. So you know, it was very, it was very difficult for me to choose one piece of music. The film was easy, 
it's the godfather that was my favorite yeah. as well for me it's like it's a no brainer is it the first one or the whole trilogy the first and the second and the second okay what about the 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 film again it's it's so layered and it's one of those movies that you watch over i think i must have watched it over 30 times you don't get bored it doesn't get old um the book it was i i couldn't choose between two uh one of them is 100 years of solitude again for me it's like the godfather so many layers so many you know and and the the whole um, sort of play between fantasy and yet how real the emotions are and how you know it's 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 amazing i find it fascinating mm-hmm. how he writes and the other one is aulat haritna and you amina yeah, my answers now are going to be very lame i'm just going to repeat everything she said so with the music it's very very challenging for me uh like fatma mentioned earlier um it, it's smooth so if i'm working it has to be classical music i cannot work to anything else because there's no lyrics yes. because it's just background because no and and something about how i feel i i i tend to um wave a lot and move my hands a lot when i'm thinking of design and i think the classical music how it goes up and goes down allows me to actually do the movement in my head interesting certain times it's only a mukalsum and then if i'm i love to dance so if i'm not feeling well or i feel like i need an uplift it will be just dance music whatever dance music entails and i'll just blast it and again it will be a favorite moment with movies uh again very challenging because i am a bit of a movie buff um godfather definitely made top of the list uh for all the reasons that fatma had stated but also not just the characters and the family values and I, but the the music the perfection the scenario the scenes the the and every time you think you're done watching it and then you find out how marlon brando was hired to the movie and then how al pacino was hired to and then it just it drops another layer and another depth to the movie entirely Uh but I also I'm a huge fan of Guns of Navarone. Wow, that's a classic. Huge fan. Yeah, yeah. So basically it's World War 2 and they're in Navarone, it's in Greece and the Germans have taken over and it's the basically the British intelligence hires these six or seven um soldier uh, officers to go and bomb uh the guns in Navarone. But it's it's timeless. It's unusual for someone of our generation to pick a movie that's So I and my father made me watch all these movies since I was 4. I grew up watching all these war movies that fascinated me. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and all the mafia movies yeah. obviously. And there's so many and yeah. I I can yeah. sit here and list endless um books. I'd say two, both are actually in Arabic. I was surprised myself. Aulat Haritna or Children of Our Early definitely for Najib Mahfouz. And Yawman Ghaim fi al-Bar al-Gharbi, Muhammad Mansi Anzil. Again it's um I love how he puts um so he he starts off in the 1920s and he's talking about this historical period in Egypt um with fiction with a character but everything historical it's the the discovery of Tutankhamun's mm-hmm. Howard Carter and then he goes back to Tutankhamun's periods with Akhenaten and he just again it's oh, all and it's Where? all history 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 but through fiction and is it done in flashbacks or is it separate oh it is but it's so good it's it he just keeps going back and forth back and forth back and forth and the way he and i like a bit of history but i like i don't want 
facts and dates and fa it's just so nice to integrate our history in a novel yeah yeah and i think i think when you integrate history in a fiction format it captures the imagination in a way that non-fiction can never do and the dates and the, the timelines and the period never leave your mind any today i feel like I know so much about that period yeah. because خلاص, it's so linked to yeah. the characters yeah. versus when you sit and you have to learn, learn, learn. While Fatma is a company CEO, Amina is head of design. Each occupy two pillar roles in the company and work hand in hand to ensure their mother's philosophy and aesthetic are moved forward for a new generation of customers. My mother was... Um, Graduated from the Faculty of Fine Arts, studies interior decoration. That was in the early 60s. If you can imagine being in Egypt in the early 60s, it, there wasn't um, the current scene of entrepreneurship and, and private businesses. And you, you either had a, a, government. a government job, which was very safe and secure, or you had some sort of family business that you're going to be a part of. And so she joined, actually, uh, I think it was the Ministry of Information back then, where she used to design uh, children's uh, covers, uh, book covers. And she, she, she always says, I was never too passionate about what I did, and she's a very passionate person. And so she tried very different things. So she'd go into and take courses about in ceramics and try ceramics. She tried interior design, and that was her degree. And she tried different things, and then... Um, I think that was a major pivot in her life where one day she goes to the book fair, the Cairo book fair, uh, and she comes across this book uh, about medieval jewelry in German. She didn't speak a word of German, but it's like she's like, I saw it and it's like I was hypnotized. It's like, and, and the book was, um, I think was almost all of her salary. She work. always talks about how she felt rather than the content of the book. She always says, my heart was pounding so so hard it and she always ca calls it like it was a moment of destiny and she knew right then right there that this is what she's meant to do i'm always fascinated when people say things like that because i've never had that I, i've had, You've that. had it amina tell me about that so be, because my mother was a single mother so um she used to pretty much take Fatma and I everywhere, including exhibitions. So when we were little girls, we would just travel with her everywhere in the world and help her set up and sell and everything. And um, and, and she sat us down, Fatma and I, and she said, uh, do you want this business? Because I am happy just to remain at the same size as I am. We don't need to continue it. I think at the time I must have been 13, Fatma 16 or something like that. And I remember both of us looking at her like, what are you talking about? Of course we want this business. So we knew we were getting there. Um, so even though I had a very artistic side and I kind of knew that I wanted to do this, but there wasn't any assurance. You're just fantasizing about a dream. Uh, I, I remember incidents where Fatma and I would be walking in London and I must have been 10 and I would tell her something like, oh, we're going to open a shop here one day. I have no idea where I'm getting that information, but it's like, oh, we're going to open a shop here one day. And um, I decided to pursue this path, this, at the time I didn't understand it was passion, uh, from an educational side. So I went uh, to Italy, to Florence, and I was in this tiny little uh, contemporary jewelry school. And I sat there, I'm 17 years old, and I'm piercing out my first brass ring. It was a shape of a crown. And I remember my heart pounding, 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 pounding so much. 
And you know when you say, this is it, this is it. And I remember leaving uh, the saw that I was holding. At the time, they were calling cards. There was no such thing as you just, you know, call international. So I got a calling card, which was very challenging in Italy. And I called my mother up and I'm screaming outside school, this is exactly what I need to do. This is exactly what I want to do. And she's like, no, no, you know, like, if, do other stuff as well. I don't want to push you. And I actually did one more year of everything, fine art, pottery, fashion, photography. But I, be sure. To be sure. But it was that moment in school that it was like, this is it, this is it. This and you hadn't... Uh, put your hand to jewelry making before in Cairo with your mother in in her with her work. We did, but it was when I took it professionally. That's when it really hit me. Wow! Because we used to work with her in the workshop in in summer, but for us it was why are we here when yeah. all our friends are somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You were being forced into it. Exactly. Yeah, very but, much so. But with this, it was definitely a moment of fate. Amazing. Definitely. Amazing. So let's go back to the book. If you can imagine Egypt in the early 60s, it wasn't so easy to study jewelry making. and um, Or to think out of the box. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and that meant that you had to go to Khan Khalili, which is the jewelry quarters uh, back then and still is, um, and go to one of the masters and ask him to sort of teach her, which was for sure unheard of. And unacceptable for a girl who's a college graduate to go work in a workshop. Was your mother already married? Were you already born no, at this no, point? No, no, no. She wasn't married. She was living with my grandmother, who's very conservative. Uh, but she's like, it was like a train on its train track. She's like, nothing was going to stop me. And she's like, I haven't stopped since then. It's amazing. But just going back a bit earlier, she had lost her father at the age of 12. And they were living very comfortably before that. And then... Suddenly, they had a lot of financial strain. My grandmother had to provide for four kids. And so she had to keep her day job. So she would finish her day job and then go to Khan Khalili in the walking. evening, mm -hmm. walking, because she was saving on the, yeah. on the, on the, on the bus, right? Uh, and she'd stay there and she'd say, I'd, I'd put my head on the, on the bench. And she's like, I'd lift my head and it'd be 1 a.m. Yeah. And you know, she would go and tell her aunts, one day I'm going to be very famous. One day you're going to see my name in the paper. That's amazing. And did they? Were they around when that yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah. I think it took my grandmother uh, quite a bit of time to accept that my mother did that. And I remember for my mom, one of her pivoting moments when they were watching uh, a television interview with my, my grandmother was still alive. And she looked at my mom and she told her, you did good, Susan. That's you know, really it was sweet. like a very, very emotional moment. As far as as a consumer and as someone who's seen the brand over the years, I, from what I gather, she seemed to be the first to be inspired by pharaonic, Islamic, and incorporated into the into the work. Maybe she's the first here. And she's Egypt. not the first on an international. Yani, if you if you think of all the big brands, definitely the discovery of Tutankhamun really set impacted uh, impact. the whole. Actually, it's just it was she. She got inspired by everything. And like Fatma was saying, it wasn't about either the designer jewelry at the time, which only a very small percentage could afford, if you could afford the big brands, or you, you got an Italian, French, English version of it, or you were doing uh, weight by grams. Mm, mm, Either mm. way, we didn't fit in. And yeah. honestly, we didn't fit in for a very, very long time. It took, 
It took decades to convince people that you're, we're charging for the design and research and effort and technicalities and craftsmanship, and we're not charging because of... Because it weighs so much. Exactly. And it was the case really up until 10, 15 years ago. We'd still have people come in and say, oh, well, how much... How many grams of gold is that? How, and I'll and be like, yeah, I'm happy to share with you, but it's well, not the point. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like buying a painting. Exactly, but it's a different mindset. People had to adjust to that. And it was a very different mindset here. Until today, Amalak, the majority of the jewelry industry is what you call unbranded jewelry. Yes. Which is sold by grams. Yes. So up until, I think the latest yes. McKinsey study, I think it was up until a couple of years ago, 80% of the market worldwide is the unbranded mm -hmm. by gram. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is a foreign concept everywhere. This was the 70s when she was developing her, her skills. Yes. And then I think what happened, another moment, was she realized that she got to a point where her, her master couldn't offer her anymore. Mm -hmm. And she says, my, my head became much more advanced than my hand. And he couldn't, he couldn't give me that next design-wise, not, not, not skill-wise. Not skill so her, her sort of what she wanted to create in terms of design could not be fulfilled anymore by what he was teaching her. And luckily, or, or not luck, because I don't think there's, it's, it's all planned somehow. Mm -hmm. She was very, very good friends then with the, with the guy that was running the British Council and his wife. Mm -hmm. And he said, Azda, you know, you're a perfect fit for a scholarship to go to the UK and study jewelry. Mm -hmm. And so she got a scholarship to go to the UK. Um, and again, because she was so passionate and so crazy about it, she ended up doing a two-year program in six months. That was a, pr it propelled her into another, another dimensional. Yeah, yeah. And what did she do when she returned? I think she opened her first workshop. And, and she said, she says, like my first exhibition before opening her workshop where she, I think her salary was three pounds and she got silver with it and she did five <laughs> rings and her friends bought them for 15 pounds and then she put it's the 15 pounds and bought raw material and you know. Her first real exhibition, she sold for a thousand pounds and she had claimed then that she had already was a millionaire. She was like, done, I'm done, I'm done. It was, it exceeded her expectations, Completely. right? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. The, the capital of Azafami jewelry was three pounds. So she carried on. She was by then married. You were both born, and she she divorced when you were both very young. Is that right? I want to say officially I was six and you were nine, but I think we moved out earlier. I'm fascinated when I hear stories of women who are juggling all these things. She's juggling a burgeoning career in an in an environment that is not receptive to women. Well, mind you, Malak. The jewelry industry worldwide is a male-dominated yes. industry. Yes. It's not just in Egypt. Not just if you think Egypt. of all the brands, they're all men. Mm. Because it was very linked to craftsmanship, and craftsmanship was linked to men. Very few jewelry designers in the world are women. Yeah. How many brands can you name? The worldwide. You know? That's right. There are, That's that right. are founded or led by women. And very I think few. I can name six worldwide. So it, that makes it even more groundbreaking, actually. Because she, you know, it wasn't just a, an Arab or an Egypt-centric thing. It was a, it's a worldwide thing. But again, going back to the idea of single mother raising two young children, two young women, actually, which is also significant, um, in Egypt, 
you know, even today, being a, a single mother is hard. But in the in the mid '80s, it, it was very must have been very difficult. I think for my mother, if you ask her, she'll. And I think it's with us. It's the same. We never knew. Gender was never an issue for us, because we didn't come. We came from a very strong matriarch family that didn't teach us that because you're a woman, you weren't allowed to do. We really had so much freedom and so much limitlessness. To her, she didn't see that her being a woman meant that she was unable to do. She, we would have the exact same challenges today as a business if we were men. I don't walk into a room and feel like, oh, I'm a woman. I must do twice as hard to earn their respect. I don't, I've never felt that. I don't know Fatma. I've never felt that. I think the challenge comes, like you say, when now you're juggling with two little girls and now you have a brand new responsibility, these girls that need a lot of love, attention, everything that you need to do. I think that's where the challenge came in as gender. Yeah, and I think it must have, there must have been moments when she, she questioned it all and must have thought at, at some point very low, it must have been quite lonely for her because dealing with two children on your own is hard in the best of circumstances. And then you're, you're in this business where you're starting it and it's, and it's at the time, even then, um, groundbreaking. My mother built a wonderful support system around her. We grew up also with a very strong support system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that she was, I want to do it all and I want to do it alone. She got, Lenny, mm -hmm. we were, we were happy to hang around my aunt or I don't know what, or, you know, it's, there wasn't the super overpowering, I need to control all the narratives, you know? And, sure. and I think it's the only way it could have worked. And that's healthy because as, as relationships between all of you, that's the only way it could have worked. So did you spend as much time as you could uh, around the, the business in the workshop? Um, was it a natural place for you both to spend your time? Definitely. Definitely. You Definitely. I remember days on end being in at Lain Gallery where, you know, I just get a pound a day for sweeping. Or How cute. Very young. Yeah. And then in the summers, like I mean, I was saying, we'd go to the workshop and we'd bead necklaces or we'd go with my mother to London if she had an exhibition or we'd go, went to China with her, like, you know, everywhere. I just everywhere. went everywhere. She and used to call us her assistant. And now you're both very clearly embedded in the firm. Was there a point? I, I mean, Amina, I think said that from she had an epiphany moment where she realized this is what she wanted. What about for you, Fatma? Was there a point where you considered other kinds of careers? Anna, no, Anna. For me, it wasn't like Amina at all. Actually, I ended up joining the business very. Um, I don't want to say coincidentally, but in an unplanned way, mm -hmm. where I was, I was actually, I thought I'd be in design. So mm -hmm. I never thought, again, I had a very strong creative Aesthetic side. And I had decided not to travel. I didn't want to uh, travel. My mother wanted me to go to the UK. And I said, no, I'd rather stay here at the beginning and maybe go later. You mean at the university yes. age? And so I, I went to the Faculty of Fine Arts. Mm -hmm. uh, and then very quickly after joining, I realized I had a lot of time on my hand and I wasn't stimulated yeah. or challenged. So my mother was like, okay, why don't you, we're in this, you need to finish it. Why don't you come work part-time? And, and so I started working part-time and I found myself being drawn to the commercial side of things. Mm. Um, Which you probably were not expecting. At all. at all. So the whole thing was unplanned. Mm. Mm. So I started working sort of in a, 
things were not that structured at the time. So my mother was, was very much, it was still a very one-woman one show in the sense of she was very involved in all aspects of the business. I think we must have been around a team of 20, 25 back then. And so I sort of uh, would do a bit of sales and then a bit of PR and then a bit of marketing and then, you know. Mm. And then I realized I got more and more involved and, and ended up spending much less time at, at college. But so for you, just as, a, as, you're, as an individual, you had a major, you had a pivot at the time where you were in the Faculty of Fine Arts thinking you'd have a path in, in the design world. And then you, you moved into a commercial role unknowingly mm. like you know when something happens very very slowly i mean i think amina's story is is more unique yes i don't know many people who have that aha moment i discovered that i was like my story is unique about 10 years ago mm. because i always thought like that's I what was, happens to everyone that's what happens yeah. to everyone yeah. it's you know you sit with someone and they're in their early 30s and they're like we don't know what we want to do and my question is how? What, what do you mean you don't know what you want to do? And the fact that you were so young, it's, it's such a blessing. Actually, you Malak, Yanni, something I don't share often, I knew when I was really seven. Really? Yes. You felt it? I felt it and I would sign my birthday cards. It's a very famous brand, <laughs> but I would say future so-and-so. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have many you, birthday cards signed. You knew it then. When I was seven. And oh, uh, no brainer. I'm going to be huge. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> so, so when you would watch your mother as a child uh, drawing something, drawing a piece of jewelry or designing something, would you get in there and say, mommy, I think you should do it like this? At all. No, you didn't. No, I had, I would sit and draw, but actually I wasn't drawn to drawing jewelry. I just was drawn to art in general. I would love to draw. I would love to design fashion. I, w I was very drawn to anything yeah. artistic, yeah. but it was the feeling that I got more than mm. how it will actually come. Right. Like I said, when we would walk around with Fatma in London and I would tell her something silly, like we're going to open a shop here. I don't know where I get these statements, but it's just so it's it's a feeling. The, the end result. Yeah. It's like the end result was the feeling you felt, yeah. but it wasn't the process necessarily at itself. all. Yeah, at yeah. all. It yeah. was and I think it's. I think all of us are somehow this way, which is very strange. Like you know the whole trend with vision boards and stuff. Yes. I think it just came naturally to us. Not. I remember when yes. when I was a junior in the marketing department, and um, a colleague of mine, who's now our our uh, PR director, and um, we had to present to to the general manager then a presentation about marketing and sort of a three-year plan. I remember what we did as the cover of the presentation was sort of we, we photoshopped uh, Aza Fahmi on the cover of Vogue mm -hmm. uh, and back then in Dubai. And within a year, both things happened. Both things happened. But like we didn't even say how in the presentation. Do you That's know what so I mean? Funny. It was yeah. sort of, yeah. we see ourselves in Vogue and we see ourselves opening even in Dubai. Matthew Williamson, I think with Matthew Williamson, I think he did a collaboration with H&M. And I would... And I loved his collaboration with H&M. And I would, I would say something silly like, one day we're going to work with him. And I remember the first time we got an email that we we're going to work with him. And our reaction, me, Fatma, and the PR directors, is that we just chose not to read the email. <laughs> if, if you read it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't happen. And I, remember, I remember that day because all of us sat beside each other and said, did you get the email? I got the email, but I couldn't read the email. That's <laughs> so like, funny. We'll read it tomorrow. That's <laughs> okay? really funny. But it was like, it, it was the same with so many things. We would just say random stuff. And then suddenly it, it But comes. I think it's, it's like the conversation my mother had with her aunt, where one day I'm going to be in the papers yeah, and be famous. Yeah, yeah. It sort of 
having that vision where you know where you're going to get to, you don't know how right now. Mm, 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 mm. But, but and, and it's happened to us so many times, Emalak, in plans. But that's so important, Fatma, because you, as you said, your mother went through very difficult times when she was building the business. But having that in your head, that end result, knowing this is where I will be, allows you to go through those difficult moments exactly. and think, I'll just keep going. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well that's exactly sort of the point because even after that we've had a lot of difficult times i mean with the revolution uh with the devaluation of the pound with the pandemic and everything sort of hit right after mm, one another mm, mm. and we're a growing company so yeah. we're doing a lot of investments in growth and it's that yes it's it's sort of it it's okay it's tough now it's yes. we're under a lot of pressure now but this will pass yes like they don't have the option of mm. not People doing always it. assume that the smaller you are, the harder it is. And I remember during the pandemic, I had so many um, younger brands or smaller brands that contact us say, oh, you guys must be fine. You know, it's so much easier for you guys. And I'm like, how? We're 300 employees. How is it easier for us than, you know, it's, it's the perception of if you're smaller and you have the lack of experience, it must be so much harder. It's harder on the experience and what to do. But the bigger you get, the problems grow because now you're responsible for so many people. You're not just responsible for two or three or five. And the domino effect is bigger. Exactly. And, and with the pandemic, it was the first time we got hit in all our markets. And with the revolution and with the devaluation, there was always a market that was sort of helping us. Mm, but it was the first time where you have your London shop closed, Dubai closed, Egypt closed, Jordan online. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. So you mentioned that you're a company of about 300 people. How do you, obviously you have clear, between the two of you, the two sisters, clear roles in the firm. But how do you come to decisions as a family? Do you consider this, it's still considered a family business. You look at it that way, right? Um, how involved is your mother? Very involved. Uh, very involved. Is she very involved in the design or is she very involved in the trajectory of the firm? No, both. The both. trajectory of the firm, for sure, she's very involved in. And she's very involved in design and she's a workaholic. Mm. So she's the kind of person that has her, not just her plate full, but sort of mm. overflowing. You know, overflowing and, and, and she needs about four lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our issue is always how to hold her back because it, it just becomes too mm. much on all of us. We were just recently having a conversation about that. Uh, what we've been through, I mean, we've been through different phases as a company and as a family, mm -hmm. but the latest we've done, which I think has helped us very much, is we've gone through a governance exercise mm -hmm. uh, that sort of very clearly says who does what and where. And one of the things we've added that has helped us a lot is an advisory board. So even though we're a family business and we're privately owned, we have a board. 
to uh, help you with, with to help to us with that with that issues. sort of because sometimes the three of us might not agree. Yes, I'm talking. I'm talking about the big decisions. I'm of not talking. So day to day, it's very clear who does what. Of course, um, but with the bigger decisions, and I think so far we 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 always reach a consensus mm -hmm. because we're all in agreement about our board in terms of trusting them, and and they're very diverse in mm -hmm. terms of expertise, mm -hmm. but all very trustworthy. So and we're, we're all in agreement in of our vision. Our vision. We're None of us want to say, oh, we want to be this commercial brand that, that, you know, or like we all agree on where we need to go. How about sometimes there's a little bit of difference. Oh, it's the know. how that we sometimes sort of sure. disagree about. And that's where the, the, board, the board comes, comes in, in and yeah. becomes very helpful. And I think through conversations, we, we end up agreeing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean, about yeah. the direction. So you're, is your mother still designing or are you now the, the primary designer? My mother is still chief designer, uh, so she's still the boss. And, and she always will be. <laughs> she always will be, but she's responsible actually for about 20% of the collections or 20% of the pieces. Uh, but she still has to approve everything that I design. Uh, our relationship dynamics have shifted drastically over the years. Tell me about that. Um, first three years, I wasn't allowed to open my mouth. Just put it in a very nice, very diplomatic way. That's hilarious. So you would just implement what she would tell you? I would just observe. Ah, I see. So <laughs> I, even, even one step before that? I wasn't allowed to have an opinion. Okay. <laughs> even but, though I had a degree. But you know, Amina, that's your apprenticeship. Yeah, right? yeah. It, la, 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 yeah, we took it, Yen. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah. I've cried in the bathroom a thousand times. I, I said, it doesn't sure. matter. I'm <laughs> sure. It got me to where I was. I'm sure. And then in 2008, she allowed me to design our first collection, um, my first collection. And from then on, but she still, we started actually getting along in terms of work around 2009, 2010, just about four or five years after I joined the company. And we, it's, it's like we came up with this new product because I was, I had just spent six years in Europe and I was obsessed with everything modern and contemporary that didn't make any sense to my mother. And my mother would throw all this heritage and culture at me, which to me at the time felt very demodé and you know, so, this is so 2008 kind of attitude. Um, but four or five years into conversation, she started obsessing about contemporary jewelry and I started obsessing about really? everything old. So you, you met in the middle. Exactly. So we met in the middle and we produced this entire new product that had this mix of bridging those two things, the contemporary jewelry with heritage and culture. That must have been very exciting for you and for her because you you meet each other. And it's weird because it took some time for our clients to come around. So the first time mm. we actually did that, everyone was like, oh, what happened to Azafahmi? It must be the influence of the new daughter. You know, it was that kind of, um, you know, and then other people were like, yeah, but it's good. It's a fresh eye. It's new. It's, you know, but I think I remember this period because you, you brought in a lot of semi-precious stones and that, that, a lot. That it was just a lot of different, different. shapes, very <clears throat> modern shapes. It was, it, it wasn't your typical Azza Fahmi look. Um, but I think one of the very nice moments for me with my mother was in 2011, which is six years after I joined, uh, when she looked at me and she said, finally, a decent design. <laughs> that's so funny. So that was a, back, a backhanded compliment. But that's interesting because six years is a lot. It's a lot, to, a long time to wait. And I did... I did five and a half years in Europe with one of the best 
jewelry design degrees in the world. What did, was you, what did you answer her? I just, I, I, like I said, I didn't know whether to be very happy and over the moon and feel very offended. That's that's funny. So she's like, finally, a decent design. And then she looked at me and she's, you know what? You're not bad. <laughs> that's the highest compliment. Find you, my mother is someone that is very critical. She's a perfectionist. But even she's very, so she finishes a collection and as soon as she we launch it into the store, she hates it. Yeah. She said, this is not good. I should have done this and I should have. And, and one of our challenges in terms of management is knowing when to stop her mm-hmm. because she can go on perfecting it. And who does she listen to in those situations? But we have a structure. We have a manager for the, the design office to put her on a calendar to say, I'm sorry, it's going into sampling. That's it. It's perfect. You all think it's okay. You'll but, never think it's, it's good really enough. But it's interesting that the, the company has evolved into a very structured entity. It's not about her. It's not just her sitting there with a pad and a paper designing or using her hands to build. It's become a, it's become a, a, a And large... I don't think we would have reached where we are, Yamalak, if it was... Because I think that's one of the most challenging things about artists artist. and designers. Because you said she's a perfectionist and the fact that she allowed other people to come in and say, La, it's enough. Come on, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's vision and, and a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if the word is maturity or, it's, she is a visionary mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Because you see a lot of amazingly really? talented business, uh, artists and designers that never make it, Absolutely. not because their designs are not good, but because they, 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 they didn't allow the complementing yeah. on the business sense. Exactly, or other people's input. Exactly. exactly. What is what what's coming next for for you as individuals and you as a company, Amina? Let's start with you. I always struggle with these questions because we're doing so many things. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's... so we've been talking a lot about the company in terms of you've all thought of it in terms of the end product or the end. I see this. What do you see as coming next? I think for me now it's it's branching out of jewelry because. We've, we've mastered jewelry and we've mastered um, craftsmanship and, and design that I feel like it's, I want to pour that into other products. Such as what? So much, whether it's bags, whether it's it just, you know, it's cutlery, it's homeware. It's, it's, once you know proportions and you know motifs and you know history and you know everything, then it you know, automatically it just takes you. And I think like Amina was saying, it's, it's, we've built this brand that has, bec- that has such a strong DNA that now it, we feel it's time to take it into other sort of product ranges, but also very much so geographical expansion. Because I think we've barely scratched the surface when it comes to our international presence. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of what's next uh, in terms of international expansion. Kaman, I remember um, Fatma that a few years ago, maybe not even that long ago, you did an um, executive um, MBA with a focus on luxury brands. And in my perception, I don't know if, if it's uh, just my own perception or if it was a conscious brand decision, but there seemed to be a point, I would say maybe 10, 12 years ago, where the, the Azafahmi brand leaped into a slightly different category. Did that happen consciously or was it just a natural progression? I'd say both, Malak. I'd say both. I think it was how we felt the brand should 
that's sort of the natural progression of it. But then we did it consciously. Mm -hmm. After that realization, we're like, no, this needs to happen. Mm -hmm. We need to focus on repositioning. We need to focus on, on, on this sort of that trajectory. And was that based on wanting to be international? Did that, the two were... were, were Very connected? much so. Because when you start thinking of the international market, you realize that certain things don't work and, and other things you need to work on. And so that was the focus. And, and going back to the masters, because, because I've never studied what I do, I sort of needed that. First of all, I thought I needed the knowledge. And so it was an amazing experience because it was the first, it's the first masters that's focused on the luxury market. And it was a joint program between Bocconi and ESSEC, which are both very big schools in the luxury industry. And so for me, it was a fantastic opportunity. It's an executive program. I can do it while I'm working. But what I realized when I started doing it is a lot of the things we, we studied is stuff I know, stuff we do naturally. But, but hearing it at, you know, at that level... So it was a confirmation in a way. A lot you. of it was confirmations. And a lot of it was confirmations for sort of what we do in terms of sort of driven by our gut, yes. just common sense. Yes. But we need that because... I think part of our challenges being in Egypt is the, the, the ecosystem doesn't exist, the industry doesn't exist. So you're sort of operating in a vacuum. You are, but you're also creating norms. Of course, and things are changing. Yeah. But when you are sort of paving the way, it's very hard of you, and it's very expensive. Yes. Because a lot of things you can't do here because what you want to do at an international level is not ava wasn't available. And there's no precedent. At all. Yeah. So yeah. you're sort of just running. And that's part of why we... Our vision was, and my mother's vision was, to develop the school and the, develop the vocational center. And because she was like, first of all, if you want to study jewelry, like when she wanted to study it, or Amina, they had to go to the UK. How many people can go to Europe to it's study? It's not affordable for everyone. It's not doable. Of course. For most people. Of course. And even for us as a business, how do I hire new designers? I can't hire yeah. from Egypt. I need to hire from Europe if I want to grow the department. So. It was for us, okay, so we need to have a design school. We need to have a design school in the region. You don't have it in the region, not just Egypt. You need to formalize the industry. Exactly. You need to create a... And create a hub. And then yeah. those designers, yeah. they can't operate in a vacuum. They need craftsmen. So we've developed our vocational training school that develops craftsmen. Mm. Uh, because, again, you, you, you designers sort of graduate, and then they don't have many people that can work because that, the crafts are dying and people are not teaching it anymore. So that was another angle. I've recently, um, we've established uh, the Egyptian Fashion and Design Council. And our, our vision as a council- That's a new thing? It's a new thing. We've, we've established it before COVID, but then with COVID we couldn't do much. Uh, and the idea is we were five people that are sort of leaders in the design and fashion industry that came together and said, okay, we've all suffered individually. We've all paved the way each of us on our own, mm -hmm. but we've made it. But things should not be that hard. We need to create the industry because if you create the industry and you create the ecosystem, it becomes easier for everyone. Of course. And yeah, and norms are there and, and standards are set. And, and, and there's, there's this thing actually where we took it in the, because I've always, we've always sort of struggled with this, which you call the, the challenge of country of origin. If you think tech, you think Silicon Valley. If you think cars, you think Germany. If I tell you, oh, you know, this is a car from Tunisia, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. what, you know? And luxury and jewelry and design is Italy and France Absolutely. and has been for the last 500 years. Yeah, yeah. 
So how do you, how do you create that ecosystem that comes into, and in the region it's Lebanon, mm -hmm. it's, it's not Egypt. Yeah. You, we need that ecosystem because it supports all of us. When we went to the UK in 2003 and started knocking on doors, no one would see us. Forget about checking your work, no one would see Why? us. We're from Egypt. Who comes from Egypt? So how did you change that? Persistence. 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 <laughs> Just kept knocking. <laughs> and showing them the product. And showing them the product and then... Collaborations. Collaborations. Yeah. People are, you, our first collaboration with Julian McDonald, and it was... And he's oh. edgy and he's And, and, he's and back, back then and Julian was the golden yeah, boy yeah, of, yeah. of sort of UK designers. Absolutely. And so you're collaborating with Julian, that must mean you're, you're good. Uh, yeah. But it was constant. It was, I, I remember meetings where I left where where people would say, you know, even after seeing the product, we love the product, but we can't have a brand from Egypt. I left meeting where people would say, well, I thought I'd get uh, uh, veiled women who don't know how to speak English. Like the, 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 yeah, the, con the misconceptions shocking. are shocking. Yeah, and shocking. these are educated people yeah. in the heart of Absolutely. London. Yeah. Now, now a lot of younger brands, when they go and they say, oh, you know, we did this and we met up with this department store and, we're in, and, and there's a part of me that almost wants to say, Thank you're, you. welcome. you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, because you opened the doors for a lot of younger brands. It's it's like Fatma's saying. It's not it's just. It's, you know how you you throw one pebble and it's like the first one is so hard and then all of a sudden there's a ripple effect and it just grows very yeah. naturally and you create that ecosystem and it exactly what Lebanon did. I'm sure Eli Saab when he knocked on doors in Paris. It must have been, Yanni, without knowing his, it must have been extremely difficult yeah. for him. Yeah. He was a designer from Beirut who was trying to make it in, in, in one of the most important cities for fashion in the world. And now, whenever you say fashion region, Lebanon pops in. And when you say Lebanese designer, there's this association of, oh, they must be amazing. And now there are hundreds and hundreds of, but I, I'm sure it's because of, he started that. Mm -hmm. He started that movement. Thank you for listening to this episode of What I Did Next, brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and with Shirag Desai co-producing. Please remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for news about the show. Just search for What I Did Next. Our next episode will be in two weeks' time, and we hope you can join us then.